As we transition to talking about Acts tonight, I wonder if you've ever had this realization that it's easier to love the idea of something more so than it is to love that thing itself. For example, it's easy to love the idea of being somebody's best friend. Joe wants to be the kind of guy that people say, Joe is a great friend. He's there for you anytime you need him, day or night. You can call him whenever you need him. I love the idea of people saying that about me. But the idea actually of calling me day or night, well, let's show some sensibility here. Call me when you think I'm awake. You know, uh, we, we feel that way too about maybe you idealize the idea of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I love the idea of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And then you realize at some point when you have one, this is actually inconvenient to me sometimes. I love the idea of it, but it's inconvenient. I love the idea of service. People ought to serve more often. Maybe you've said this. I've certainly said this. And then someone says, hey, Joe, we're actually going to clean up the house in the corner Saturday morning at 8. Saturday morning at 8, I was actually going to do something fun at that time. No worries. We're going to do something Friday morning, too. Ooh, I work Friday, so that's not a good time. I mean, I love that you're doing that. I love the idea of service. But when it's inconvenient to me, I don't love it as much. Can you identify with that at all? What about the idea of diversity? We love the idea of diversity until we're surrounded with people who aren't like us, don't think like us. It's one of the most beautiful things about Penn State is the power that comes when 106,000 people shout at the same time, we are. It's electrifying. There's something powerful about that, that unity, isn't there? That anybody can come and say that. But there's also an ugly side to it, isn't there? Sometimes. What happens when somebody vocally, without anonymity, questions how Thon is run or managed? It gets controversial, doesn't it? The metaphorical guns come out. Jack pointed me to an article uh, earlier this week. Onward State ran an opinion piece. It said that there was much to be praised about Thon, but suggested that there were also aspects of the Thon culture that were toxic. The first comment on Facebook seemed pretty reasonable. Penn Staters not questioning things is exactly what led to Jerry Sandusky and the Second Mile. Thanks for your thoughtful piece. Oh, productive dialogue is about to happen. The comment right under it, blow it out your ass, Natalie, middle finger emoji. (laughs) Okay, okay, so we love unity, we love diversity, but when somebody says something that I don't think, hey, Natalie, I've got a few words for you. The point is, Underlying Penn State's unity, there are fault lines, right? Underlying something beautiful, there are fault lines. And this is true of any organization, any people group, any sociological people group. There are going to be significant fault lines that undergird unity. So where can a unity be found that is stronger than these fault lines? I'm not saying where can a unity be found where there are no fault lines, 
where can the unity be found that is stronger than these fault lines? And you guys go, I know what you're going to say, Joe. Good. You think that I think we can find it in Jesus. That's what I'm going to propose tonight. One of the great themes in the book of Acts that I've been trying to trace is that God is bringing people from all sorts of different backgrounds into one kingdom, one church, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, from socioeconomic background differences, you know, Greeks, right, Romans, you know, the philosophers, the Jews, any and everyone Jesus is bringing into his kingdom under the forgiveness of Jesus, under the lordship of Jesus, there is great diversity. So I want to read this passage from Acts 16 that shows three very different people being brought together into the same church by the same Lord. Chapter 16, verse 11. So setting from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. The trim- and with trembling fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
And he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for um, Lydia. We thank you for this slave girl. We thank you for this jailer. And we ask that you would show us tonight something of the God who changed their lives. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you please dig out for us ears to hear? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've got three uh, conversions in this passage. Uh, you've got Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. And they're very different, and these people are very different. They've got almost nothing in common, and what Jesus does is he brings them into the same fellowship. And I should say, sort of on the front end, that I heard uh, a Tim Keller sermon on this passage years ago, and it is sort of locked into my mind. So some of the thoughts I've heard before, and then when I was reading this, I read a commentary by John Stott, and I was like, oh, this is what Tim Keller was reading, because John Stott says the same thing. So I have no idea who John Stott saw, stole it from, but there's some obvious, a lot of people who see the same things in this passage, and you should just know that I'm dependent on some of their thoughts. So Paul's on a missionary journey. And you know what that means? He's, he's, he's going, he's trying to spread the name of Jesus, the gospel. People who may have never heard of him before, he wants to say, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and you should put your faith and your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And so obviously, the first thing that, that, that he often does is he goes to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. He goes to people who are familiar with a context in which to say the Messiah promise that you're waiting for, he's actually come. I know his name. And so he comes to to, uh, Philippi, the letter that the Philippians is written to. This is when he plants this church. He comes to Philippi, and he looks for a temple probably. He doesn't find it, and so he goes by the river, and he finds a prayer service, a group of women who have gathered to pray, and they're God-fearers. They worship God, but maybe they haven't fully become Jewish. And Lydia is there. What do we see in um, verse 14? One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So a few things we learn about her here. She's a foreigner. Uh, She's a foreigner to Philippi. She's from Thyatira, so she's not from Philippi. Uh, We also learn that she's a seller of purple goods, and purple goods were fancy. Uh, They had the dyes for this in Thyatira, so she's, think of her as a high-end retailer, um, an importer. She's bringing in fancy stuff from somewhere else. This woman is rich. She's a businesswoman. She's a seller of purple goods. 
She's rich. And the Lord opens her heart. She's already a worshiper of God. She's a moral person. She's like Cornelius that we saw last week. So she's a foreigner. She's rich. She's religious. And God enters her heart. He opens her heart to hear. And this fits with what is we see in Acts 13, 44. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Not as many as believed were appointed, but as many as were appointed believed. Lydia's heart is opened because she's been appointed to believe. And so her faith response to the gospel is a gift. God has given her a gift to respond in faith to what she's hearing now about Jesus. Likewise, if you have come to believe in the gospel or you are struggling to begin to believe the gospel, you're closer than maybe you were, the encouraging thing about that is that God is at work. Somebody from outside you is at work enabling you to do what is not natural to yourself. If believing in Jesus feels like it's hard, but you're moving in that direction, Jesus is at work. And so God, he turns the lights on for her. She gets it. Have you ever used this language of somebody talking about the gospel? Like, they get it. It's not that they've heard it, they get it. It's, they understand. The lights have gone off. She's a God-fearer, but she doesn't yet know who Jesus is until Paul comes and says, you know those Old Testament scriptures you read, or the scriptures you read? They are all about Jesus. Lydia, you study the law. You know the law. You should know they all point to Jesus. The sacrifices that you read about, they all point to Jesus. He kept this law perfectly. He was crucified as a sacrifice. He is alive, and if you put your faith and trust in Him, your sins that the Old Testament law tells you are many will be washed away. And it clicks. It all begins to make sense for Lydia. She doesn't have to be good. She doesn't have to serve others in order for God to love her. God has loved her in the person of Jesus. And He will change her. He loves her. And so the Gospel transforms this strong businesswoman. And what she begins to do, you see her become hospitable. If I have found favor in your sight, please come and stay with me. One of the marks that she's been changed is that she becomes hospitable to God's people. And then the narrative moves on to a very different woman, a slave girl. And look at how different she is. She's obviously poor. She's no possessions of her own. She's a slave, which means that she's powerless socially. She doesn't have any social capital. Uh, no one's going to listen to her. She's not going to be allowed to testify in court. She's demon-possessed. This is and what people would have looked at and said, this woman is immoral. She's not like Lydia at all. The only thing she has in common with Lydia is that she's a woman. But they probably wouldn't have associated with each other in any meaningful way. Very different. How does she come to faith? Another Bible study? No. Totally different. Lydia, how does she come to faith? Paul opens the Scriptures to her and God opens her heart. Enables her to see. It's a rational discourse. I believe that. What about this woman? She's known for her clairvoyance. She's crying out that Paul and silence, 
Paul and Silas know the way of salvation, and I always get confused when I read this, like, why wouldn't they think this is a good thing? This woman who sort of can see things as they really are says, we know the way of salvation. This is a gift. But we see that Paul is annoyed. Some translations say he's grieved. He sees her broken station in life. He's also grieved that this demon is actually equating the way of salvation that they are preaching with the occult that she's a part of. They're just like me. I tell you things that are, and they tell you things that are. We're the same. And Paul says, enough. In the name of Jesus, be delivered. And so he delivers her from this demon. And in this passage, it's hard to distinguish, but there's relief from spiritual oppression But there's also relief from social oppression. The demons have been exploiting her, but so have her owners. She's a slave. You see, Jesus isn't just after her mind, and he's not just after her heart. He intends to deliver her heart, soul, and body. This is why the gospel must always necessarily lead to God's people seeking justice, being peacemakers. The gospel always inevitably inevitably leads to God's people doing for others what God has done for them, freeing them, liberating them. And so Paul doesn't treat the slave girl like he treats Lydia. He doesn't say, let's sit down, let's talk about the Bible. The women are fundamentally treated differently and both fundamentally met by Jesus through Paul. He treats them as individuals. And so when Paul delivers her from this demon, her masters are furious. They can no longer exploit her. There's no no more money that they can gain from her. They're charging people a fee to come and listen to her. What fortune will she say? Pay us. She will tell you. They can't do this anymore. And so they have Paul and Silas beaten severely with rods, and they're thrown in prison to be watched by a jailer. And after an earthquake, this jailer is converted. How does this come to pass? Well, who is this jailer? He's probably a retired soldier, an ex-GI. These are the kinds of men that would get these jobs. Um, And he's the kind of guy that's just too practical to be religious. Meat and potatoes, beer and football kind of guy. And God's about to crash into his life, literally, with pure religion. Look at how he responds when he thinks the prisoners have escaped. We read that he grabs his sword and he intends to fall on it. He intends to end his life. And if you remember last week, was it last week we talked about Peter in prison? Right? Peter's in prison, and you've got this sort of great escape, but it's totally different from this. God intervenes with two of his apostles in prison, and the way that he intervenes is totally different. One, he sends an angel, and it's sort of like handcuffs, you know, off. Door open. Go. Run. Go to the church. Paul and Silas are still, you know, in shackles. They're praying, they're singing. And an earthquake breaks the foundation of the building. And the jailer knows, I know what happens to people who let prisoners go. The guards in charge of Peter that we looked at last week, when they go in the next morning, the king says, where are the prisoners? Where they're gone? Well, you're dead. Execute them. 
And he knows my fate is to be executed like the jailers that we looked at last week. But God isn't trying to free Paul and Silas from prison just yet in the same way that he intended to free Peter from prison last week. His intention here is to free the jailer first. He's after the jailer's soul. He's crashing into somebody else's life. The way, I mean, you see this, God crashing in uninvited every time. He opens Lydia's heart. In the name of Jesus, he frees the slave girl, and now he sends an earthquake to interrupt quite violently somebody else's life. He's about to end his life. Paul and Silas, they're not sneaking out the back door. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. We're here, and apparently we've convinced everybody else to stay here too. We're all accounted for. Don't end your life. And the jailer asked, well, then what must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe that He's who He is. Believe that you are who He says you are and you will find salvation for your souls. That's what salvation, we say this every week here, but it's so important. Salvation is primarily a matter of trust in Jesus and a distrust of yourself. Trust in Jesus as the righteous one and a distrust in yourself who is obviously unrighteous. That Jesus' righteousness earns the favor of God, and instead of getting the glory he deserves, he's crucified. Our sins are put on him, his righteousness given to us when we trust him. I believe you. I am who you say I am. You are who you say you are. That is salvation. And the next thing you see, the jailer's changed. He too, like Lydia, becomes hospitable. He's washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. Already you can see he's, he's different. See, when Paul and Silas have initially been brought in, they have been beaten. Surely they are bloodied. They, they, he's callous towards them. He puts them in stocks. He's doing his job. But they pray and they sing. He's heard of the God that they believe in. That must be why he's asking them how he must be saved. He's heard the content of their, of their story when they pray, when they sing. And he's deeply moved by these men who don't leave when they have the chance. They've been hospitable to him. Through them, God is hospitable to him. And now he becomes hospitable to them. I I will wash you. I will feed you. I will take you upstairs. He's just experienced the welcome of God And he begins to welcome Paul and Silas. And we know that he's experienced the welcome of God because the very next thing that he says is, how do I get baptized? I believe in this Jesus. You've told me that his followers get baptized. How do I do that? He said, we'll do that for you right now. We'll baptize your family too. He's baptized that night. So what is this passage telling us? It's telling us the gospel is for everyone and anyone, that there's no type of person for the gospel. Because you look at these three people, this this rich woman, this poor slave girl, this sort of meat and potatoes XGI, they're not naturally going to be friends. 
They're not going to hang out together. And Jesus brings them into the same fellowship. He's planting a church. This is his core group, right? There's no church yet. This is it. Go to Lydia's house. The the slave girl, we've got the least about her. There's a lot of different opinions about her, but, but some people think she probably ended up at Lydia's house. Lydia's got room for Paul and Silas. The slave girl's got nowhere to go. And I, and I admit that's speculation, but certainly seems to fit with the hospitality that God is bringing about in Lydia and the jailer. I wouldn't die on that hill, but I wonder. There's no kind of person that the gospel is for. Uh, Keller notes uh, in several of his books, he says, Islam has always basically been centered in the Middle East. That's true. And Hinduism has always basically been centered in India. But Christianity knows no center. It starts in Jerusalem, right? It moves, it spreads, it centers in Europe for a while. It spreads, it moves to North America for a while. And right now, Christianity is, bo- is booming like crazy in South, the global South. Mexico and Africa. Like Christianity doesn't stay in one place like so many other religions do. It has no boundaries. And that's why there's no canned approach to Christianity. And sometimes Christians try to do this. Have you ever, have you ever met a Christian that tries to sort of give you the exact same sort of gospel pitch that they gave like somebody who was totally different from you? Oh, you're an ex-Marine, you know, GI. You know, here's the gospel in this form. You're a successful businesswoman. Here's the gospel in this form. Slave girl, I'm going to give you the same presentation I gave this. Like, no. Jesus doesn't do that when he walks around. His apostles don't do that when they walk around. And we shouldn't do that. There is one Lord and Savior, but the way that He meets people is very different. To give them the same person, the same Lord, the same Savior. The Gospel, this is the ultimate place where you can find diversity and unity. Diversity in that we can come from anywhere, we can look like anybody, we can have any kind of background, and come together in the person of the Lord Jesus. The gospel is absolutely leveling in this way. You can can be a successful businesswoman and have status before your peers. You can be a decorated veteran and have status before a different set of peers. You can be a slave girl and be a nobody to anyone. But before Jesus Christ, everyone is a broken sinner on equal footing, regardless of what the world says that you are. Everyone's the same. That is where unity can come. We're the same. Different stories, and we should listen. The slave girl still has a past, and Lydia still needs to listen to her. And that XGI's probably got some great stories too. This isn't to say that we are all the same, so we don't need to listen to each other. We're different. But to Jesus, we have the same need. They've got different places in society, and before God, they're the same. We all project an image of ourselves, right? Some of that image is true, and some of that image is hiding, 
What if by faith we learn to project more of who we are as needy? And I don't mean like asking for handouts or being manipulative or being, oh, poor, pitiful me. But what if we adopted more of a posture that was reflective of who we are? Humble posture. Teachable posture. A posture that readily admitted, I'm a sinner. And I sinned against you yesterday, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? What if we learned to project more a posture of who we were before God, and not who we hope to be before everyone else? It would change the way that we thought about our community. It would be a place where people of all kinds of backgrounds could come and be themselves and meet and be changed by the Lord Jesus. Jesus offers the ultimate place in his people for there to be unity and diversity because the gospel is an ultimate leveler. But I think there's another reason why the gospel brings unity out of diversity, and it's a little abstract, and I'll try to make it less so. It simply is because of who God is. God is one, and God is three. God is one unity, and there is diversity within him. Which means, if God is one and God is three, then unity and diversity is part of the very fabric of reality. It's why we long for it. It's part of the way things simply are. There is one God, and yet the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, who is not the Father. They're not interchangeable. But the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and they're equal in majesty and glory. They're God, and there's one, and there are three. And just, yes. Is God one or is God three? Yes. Within the very fabric of reality is unity in diversity. So it shouldn't be surprising that the message of God brings unity in diversity. And the church has done a horrible job at that, and in many segments of history and pockets of the country, the, the church has its sins. But we can look at the Bible and say, and here they are. The church messed up because of what the Bible says, not the other way around. We can say the Bible says the church messed up. The church needs to learn to repent. We shouldn't be surprised that the message of God brings unity where there's diversity. This also doesn't mean there should be no disagreements in the church. Again, this is a little speculation, but this jailer, if he's an ex-soldier, he knows a thing or two about leadership. He knows a thing or two about a chain of command, but Lydia is a pretty strong woman, a businesswoman. She knows a few things about leadership as well. I wonder if they clashed on leadership style. It doesn't say that in the passage, but I wonder. There are plenty of things for them to disagree about, and there are plenty of things for you to disagree about. What unites them and what can unite us is the maker of heaven and earth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And where the Bible doesn't speak, where the Bible is unclear, we can disagree with each other. 
where the Bible is clear, we need to bow the knee and submit to Jesus as our Lord because He's also our Savior. Where we really need to agree is that salvation, the unity, the diversity among it, we can find the same salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Christians celebrate that unity. There was a controversial prayer that uh, first century Jews prayed, and it went like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe who has created me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised, not uncircumcised, free and not slave. And yet not woman, not slave, and not Gentile are brought together under God in this passage. Who are the types of people that you think RUF is for? What do they look like? What do they sound like? What do they dress like? Because the Bible doesn't think that way. And Jesus doesn't think that way. And if we want to find true unity and offer true unity, we've got to stop looking so much to ourselves and who we are, what we like, and look to the person of the Lord Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Because what we need to value supremely is who He has been for us, the one who lived and died and was resurrected for people of all sorts of backgrounds to be redeemed and reconciled, not just to their maker, but with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the love that you have for those who are different from each other. And we pray that you would make us as hospitable as you made the jailer, as hospitable as you made Lydia, that we too would begin to love people in more profound ways who are different from us because that's you working through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.